Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. And away we go. Here we are at episode number 28 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, welcome to episode 28. Hey, buddy. How are we doing? We are excited for today's guest. Um, I can't wait. We're looking forward to having Lance on the podcast. But first, I'm going to have you do his bio. Yeah, let's start off with telling you who we have here. Uh, another uh, really good luck. Uh, thing getting another great guest with Lance Walker. He's a leader and innovator in performance training, physiotherapy, sports science, and education. He now serves as the current executive director for the Human Performance and Nutrition Research Institute at Oklahoma State University. Uh, previously, Lance worked as an executive vice president for global performance and sports medicine at Michael Johnson's uh, Performance in Dallas, Texas. He was also an assistant strength and conditioning coach with the Dallas Cowboys, which we'll try not to hold against you, Lance, um, as somebody who worked for the Giants for nine years. Um, the <laughs> sports medicine strength and conditioning director at the uh, Cassady School and clinical uh, site director at Health South Sports and Medicine and Rehab Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as assistant strength and conditioning coach and sports science lab coordinator at University of Oklahoma. That's a whole lot of stuff, Lance. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I appreciate you walking through that. It's uh, It adds another element of gray hair to my beard. I uh, can't grow it on my head anymore. Man, every time I read, it uh, tells me how old I must be, right? <laughs> well, you've worked at, at very high levels with athletes as both a clinician and a coach. And so how do you kind of see those two titles complementing each other? And then when do you decide, when you jump into a situation, which hat you're going to wear for that for that that particular moment? Yeah, it's a good question and, and one that uh, I still wrestle with. I think as a clinician, um, I, I wanted to be a clinician uh, because I was a control freak. I wanted to make sure that I could, I could cross that whole, that whole chasm of, of uh, health and, and, and disease model. I wanted to create that continuum for everybody I worked with, and I wanted control. I thought, you know, if I'm going to deal with athletes, I want to I want to handle the full thing from from status post day one reconstructed ACL all the way to the, you know, to the day they run their 40th NFL combine. And shame on me because you, you can't be you can't be all things to all people. You can't you know, you, you can't uh, you can't pretend to be the best at, at everything. And so I've come sort of full circle uh, with that. And now I'm, I truly believe that that there is an element of staying I say it staying in our lane a little bit and I'm, I've done a better job of that. And at, at MJP, we did a really good job of hiring some just amazing clinicians uh, that were, that were the best in class at what they did and, um, and weren't trying to be something they weren't, you know, they weren't trying to be a, 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 a closet strength coach or a, you know, a closet uh, masseuse or a, I mean, it, it really helped when we sort of kind of pulled in the Avengers 
and said, look, be really great at what you do. And, and that doesn't mean that you can't inform and speak into those other elements. It was very transdisciplinary, but it was also really important that we all knew what our expertise was. And so I'm living proof that, that you can try that. You know, I went through graduate school, tried to be a researcher because I wanted to, to own the research. And then I, I, you know, strength conditioning and, and then the youth training with Cassidy School and, and uh, whatever it is now, 30 years later, I figured out that you'll never, you're never, you're never going to go very far if you go, go alone. And um, what it's forced me after 30 years to finally reconcile in my mind is, is be really good, be world's best at what it is you do and trust those that are around you. And that might be my, my recommendation to maybe youngers out there that are maybe trying to go down my same path is, is don't fake it. I mean, you're not, if you want to be a physio, be a physio and be the best physio in the world and, and get into strength conditioning and learn a lot about that. But don't, don't try to, don't try to do both. You know, in some cases, try to make sure you have a village around you that find that expert that it's not physio that's in strength conditioning, but understands physio. And when you do that, when you find that village, I think that's when we really, you know, when we really start to get it right. And I think that's what, what I've learned over 30 years is, is my athletes are depending on me to get it right. And I'm not going to get it right by myself. It takes a village. Well, I, I love that, that approach. And, and the one caveat that I, I hope people don't miss that you put in there that the, as much as you want to be great at what you do and you want to be that mile deep, it helps to be also a little bit wide and understand what those people in your team are doing. For myself, I think it was invaluable as I was coming up and, and my brother and I both went to undergrad together and then he branched off and got his DPT and, and went to, to rehab. And then I went off into strength and conditioning and fitness. But I, I, gained invaluable information by kind of sneaking in and learning, you know, his Yonda books and, and Shirley Sarman and all those sorts of things that kind of helped me better appreciate and not pretend to be a physio or, or a physical therapist, but have a better idea of when I know I needed one and when I was out of my league. Yeah, it's, it's well said. You said the word understand. And I think that's, you know, we all, we all go through the ebb and flow of our careers and, and, and I'm, I'm, always being humbled. I mean, I, it's, I got humbled today by a strength conditioning coach. It's only been in it for a couple of years. And, and he put me in my place today because he was, he was, he was extremely well-versed in one little spot that I wasn't. And it was really humbling for me. And, and I should know that already. I should be, I should be out in front of this guy. And, and he, uh, he put me in my place today and rightfully so. And, and every day I'm humbled. And I think that's, if you seek to understand before being understood, I, I think I stole that from, is that a, a Covey uh, phrase, I think, uh, but, but I really, it's true. It sounds cliche, but, but get into that humble space and stay humble. And that doesn't, um, that doesn't mean you don't know your stuff. It really puts you in a great spot, even selfishly just to learn. And, and so I appreciate you saying the word understand, because that's really, that's a key. That's a key for me. Seek to understand. And speaking to that, I'm going to, I'm going to pick up where you left off there and, and something that I loved in doing the research for the show in your Twitter bio, you say you've been failing forward for 25 years and explain a little bit more what you mean by that. And, and I'm going to steal a, a Tim Ferriss question here. And, and do you have any specific favorite failures that you've learned the most from? Uh, it's a, it's a great one. And I stole, first of all, I don't have an original bone in my body. I, everything. And I mean, everything that I've done or am doing, I have, I have stolen or borrowed or modified. So I, I'm, uh, I'm sort of indicting myself here when I say failing forward, because I'm, I'm a biggest failure in originality. I even, I even stole that term uh, from a guy named Tony Bignell, who was director of innovation at Nike. 
who, who used that term a lot. And, and when I asked him about innovation and, you know, how do you innovate? How do you come up with all these things, these crazy things that, that they would do that, that, uh, you know, that pushed the, the, the field forward. And, and one of the things he talked about was, was don't be afraid to fail, but just make sure that you're failing forward, that you're falling forward with, with your failures. And um, sometimes we beat ourselves up. I know I do that when I fail, it's a step back. And I think that's failure is an opportunity for you to grow. That's again, cliche. I know it sounds ridiculous, but every chance I fail, I look at it now in, in, in that lens of what Tony did at Nike, which was, this is an opportunity to grow and to move forward. Uh, but that's an act. You have to, that's an active process, right? You have to have those postmortems uh, that are sometimes painful to look back at those failures to identify the space that you do go forward into. And one of those that as an example, um, goes back to a, a relationship that we had with some sports science work that in, in conjunction with a partner at NJP and the sports scientists that were there uh, to study uh, what they were interested in, which would happen to have, have to do with the 40 yard dash. They were interested in one segment of the 40 yard dash in preparation for the NFL combine that I, to be honest, we really weren't that interested in, you know, we were interested in the start and then we were interested in the overall time and maybe their top end speed um, and boy, we were getting really sharp into that space and really leveraging all our programming to attack those two ends of the 40. And this group of researchers was more interested in the middle part, that middle part from like 20 yards to, to 35, you know, that, that weird in-between space, that transition space. And, um, it was, it was after about four or five weeks of training in the NFL combine, we got great results. Uh, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. We had a, a tremendous result. But they came to me and, and said, look, you know, we'd like to share some results with you. It might be of interest to you. And some of the results were that some of the programming that you were doing was not attacking that middle zone. Like you were just literally just leaving it to chance. And uh, and they were they mentioned that in the in the best possible way. But it was indicting for me because I was instantly on the defensive. I was like, well, gosh, you know, I'm. I thought we were doing that or, or uh, this is why, you know, I'd start to kind of try to rush to, to rationalize why we weren't, but the basic premise of it was we weren't getting a result in that middle part of the 40 yard dash. Uh, and we were leaving, you know, 10th of a second on the potentially on the table for some of our athletes. And without that sort of real sort of transparent, honest, forthright conversation and data, the voice of the athlete, you know, listening to that um, and being open to that, uh, we wouldn't have been able to, to fail forward. And so we, we learned from that. We were able to pivot from that and go after potentially um, more, more 40 yard dash success in some spaces that at the time, this was, you know, almost 12 years ago now, really, nobody was really looking at that space. And now it's, it's sort of, you know, top of mind for everybody. But at the time it was really unique space that, um, that I hadn't even considered and neither really had many of my colleagues. And so it was sort of a, huh, you know, go home and cry in your beer moment. Uh, but instantly then be able to crawl into that space of, okay, let's postmortem this. What, what can we learn from this? What can we apply now? What can we pivot on? Uh, the scientists are helping us understand, is it signal or is it noise? Do you pivot on it? Or is this just, I mean, those are the, the kind of things that are really uncomfortable at the time, but uh, having, having not had that or having that third party that was completely sort of separated emotionally from the situation to, to expose that for us, we wouldn't have even known we were failing. I mean, you know, and so that's that's one example I always call to to fail forward. And it, and it changed the way that we programmed and prescribed uh, uh, our combine training 40 yard dash stuff uh, going forward from that and, and still in practice today.
I love it. And Mike, before you jump in with your next question, uh, I want to circle back to um, your point on originality and how we're really, none of us are really inventing anything. Uh, they were using medicine balls in, in ancient Greece and yogis kind of, you know, produced a lot of the, the mobility flows that we're trying to think is real innovative now, but there's a great book. And if you haven't read it, it's, it, it's kind of speaks to your point of, of it's called steel, like an artist by Austin Kleon. And if you haven't checked it out, it, it's basically the art of what we do and how much we do borrow, quote unquote, from each other uh, so we can develop our own little systems and philosophies. It's a great read. I love it. No, it's exactly right. I feel like uh, I should have wrote that book. I, I'm not very good at it. I'm getting better at it. But uh, I, what I'm not good at is giving reference to people that I've stolen from. And that's, you know, this is my disclaimer for everybody listening. Thank you. I mean, everybody, the, the custodian, <laughs> the custodian at the quick stop I came to through today to get my coffee on the way to the office. I mean, I learned something from him today. I mean, he was doing he was doing amazing work. And I just I sat there and watched him. Uh, you know, there's greatness everywhere. And he taught me something um, just in the way he was handling his business this morning. So uh, that I'm going to steal and, and, and use myself. Uh, but anyway, thank you. That's my that's my reference list is everybody I've ever kind of come in contact with in this space. Uh, I appreciate your help. That's awesome. You know what? I love the fact that you, um, you know, you're referring to someone that's not in your industry, because I think that a lot of people in the strength and conditioning industry or the rehab industry, they think that we can only learn from other strength professionals and rehab professionals. And one of the things that I always tell people is like, look, look at how a really good bartender interacts with people. Look at how a waiter or a waitress interacts with people. There's something to learn from that interaction because it's all about customer service. And uh, I think when we're working, you know, whether it's in the private sector, I own a gym, it's customer service based. But when you're working with athletes at a, you know, at a university, it's, uh, it's relationship based, but regardless, they have to trust you and they have to believe that you're going to help guide them to the next level. So I love the fact that we're learning and that you're learning from everyone. So, um, you mentioned sports science a little bit, and, uh, you know, we want to switch gears and talk a little bit about sports science. Uh, in the last 20 years, um, there's been some significant, um, just changes and developments in, in the world of sports science. And uh, what do you feel has been one of the most significant advancements uh, that you've seen in the last 20 years? And is there anything that you can forecast that you think might be the next big thing in the world of sports science? Uh, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's top of mind uh, for me here at Oklahoma state. Cause that's something that we're uh, that we're actually leveraging or, or working in that space of sports science to, um, to translate into health science. I mean, that's something that, again, it's, it's nothing new. I think, uh, uh, looking at, looking at high performers and studying what high performance is, that's been, that's been going on for, for a decade or so to try to biohack or sort of reverse engineer how we can be better versions of ourselves to avoid disease and that. So that's a big part of what I'm doing now, uh, is studying, studying optimum performance, studying optimization of performance, you know, the process of optimizing performance, not just what is optimum, but let's study the optimization of these performers and then learning into that, then uh, that black box, we call it here and, and, and others, I think on other podcasts and presentations have talked about the black box of, of the process that goes on, uh, the secret sauce, the things that happen, you know, in and behind the scenes that, that take you from, you know, one level of performance to the next is really illuminating that. Uh, but then also speaking back into that from the science, from a from a, a position of truth. And um, and that's where I think that sports science probably may. And I'll say this and, and we may have gotten it wrong. I mean, we may have gotten it wrong uh, initially. And I know that it's it's been around for a while and it's top of mind. Everybody's talking about it. But 
it may be good that we got it somewhat wrong. And I say wrong, meaning that we we spend a lot of time in descriptive data, you know, describing the data and visualizing it with dashboards. And I mean, it's been amazing. That's not all that sports science does. I know that. But it feels like we're ripe for sort of taking a, a fresh approach at this and really leveraging science, the search for that truth to speak into that black box more than just talking about it and visualizing it. Um providing a, a decision-making support system for our coaches, athletes, support staff, been doing that. Now, I think it's the opportunity now for us to really now go back through that with, with eyes to translate that and really take it and, and translate it to, to the non-athlete population, translate it to, to, health, to attacking health outcomes. And that's something I'm very excited about because I believe in it. Uh, it's, a, it's a different approach. It's maybe a a, a, a backwards approach. Some would say, well, what, you need to study disease to understand disease. You need to study poor health outcomes to, to speak into that. And, and I agree. I think that research and that science continues to be important and critical to this process. There may be an opportunity for us in the sports science world now to, to leverage that and to pull that uh, forward and, and translate that into this, uh, this machinery that ultimately I think needs to impact everyone, everyone's health outcomes, everyone's performance. Uh, it matters to me now. And I think sports science has a real play in everyone's performance, whether you're an athlete or not. So when we talk about optimizing an individual's ability, I always explain to, to all the people I work with that your number one ability is your availability and, and being able to do the things you need to do. And for an athlete, that means being able to get on the court or on the field or on the matter or track. And so injury prevention, right, is a, is a much debated and multifactorial issue that every major sports organization is looking for that magic bullet. Um, but it's not, it's not quite that simple or somebody would have figured it out. Right. So do you have a a personal kind of checklist that you use to try to account for your athletes to make sure they're as robust and resilient in in, in as much as we can control, um, you know, uh, ready to handle the, the, the rigors of what they're about to do uh, in their sport. Yeah, it's well said. And and another great example where sports science, where it needs to mesh with the basic sciences. And I think that translational and transdisciplinary approach is, the, is I think, truly the only way we're ever going to answer that question. Uh, is injury preventable? I mean, even bringing in elements of, of biotechnology and the data sciences, being able to look at things in, in four dimensions. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's crazy um, to think where what some of the data that's mainly Right now, looking at it, maybe two-dimensional or correlational, the, the depth that we now have in terms of data that we can push into a pile and through data science analyze in ways that that were that were potentially the answers may already be there, right? I mean, we just haven't looked at the data in that way. Now we have the capabilities to do that. Uh, but I right now to say that we're preventing injury, yeah, that's unfortunately that's still a bit of a a bit of a grasping at straws. I think are we reducing injury risk? I think. We're probably doing that. I think uh, strength training is an example where um, uh, the stronger the stronger is the better. Uh, I think I, we've kind of we've we've been talking about that for decades. Let's prove that out. You know, let's let's really prove out is what is strong enough. Uh, how much more strength do you need? As an example of one metric uh, of as a KPI, how much do you need to be competitive? Is there an additional buffer zone that you have there that you need to reduce your risk of injury with? And then is more, you know, tacking on top of that better, or is it possible that more is is worse? Is that you know, there's there's those questions, and I think 
to answer those questions, you have to ask those questions first. And I think I'm the first to raise my hand and go, I, I don't have those answers and I'm okay with asking the question, are, are we doing all that we can too much of or not enough of? I think we still need to ask a lot of those questions without linking to the data sciences, the neurosciences, the biosciences, that life sciences side of the, of the spectrum, bringing those folks in together in a transdisciplinary way I'm not sure we're ever going to come up with those answers on our own. And I think some of the, the silos, you know, if it's the, the physiotherapy silo or the, or the biomechanics silo or the strength conditioning silo, if we continue to sort of stay in those silos, um, I don't think we're ever going to answer that question. So it's almost, I think, forcing our hand at this point to think and to work more transdisciplinary to, uh, to get after those things. But I mean, let's face it, it's, it's a challenge, right? I mean, we can't, we can't solve the basic hamstring pull. I mean, that's like the common, that's like the common cold for, for our strength conditioning profession. Yeah. Right. I mean, we're so, we're so smart. We're so advanced. We still pull hamstrings. Why, why is that? Why is the ACL uh, continue to be a, a problem and a nemesis for us? I mean, it's, it's just challenges, right. But I, I, I'm encouraged that now when we're able to bring across some of these other experts in these other fields, as you said, uh, unrelated in some cases, uh, but data science is one of those examples where, wow, the answers are the answers may already exist. We just haven't we haven't formulated the right question to ask to get to get after it. And now being able to leverage some of the technology to really to really drive home. Is that is that an answer? or Is that just noise? I think I think it's an opportunity. Absolutely. You know, I think, uh, you know, with 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 when we're looking at injuries in general, I, I think it's really is multifactorial. And, um, you know, I think what we can do is start to just look at trends, right. To see, all right, are we seeing a certain pattern here, a certain pattern here, but to just say it's this, it's this one thing. Um, I, I think, like you said, we're grasping at straws. Um, but I think one of the, one of the, the cool things about what we're seeing in the world of strength and conditioning. And, and, you know, we get a lot of this from like Greg Rose and, and, uh, what he does over at, um, you know, TPI and he, he always refers to like F1. And, uh, you know, I think if we can get all of the, all of the team on the same page, working towards the same goal, which is, you know, to, to develop athletes that can win and be healthy. I think at the end of the day, that's what we're really looking for, but, um, it's really hard for people to, to stay in their lanes, to focus on the actual athlete and to put their egos aside because, um, you know, everybody, we all do it, right. We all think, oh, it's because of this, it's because of this, it's because of this. And I think at the end of the day, if we just say, listen, the goal is the athlete and for the team or the athlete to win, depending on what sport they're in. And if they can do that in a way uh, that they're healthy and they're robust and they're resilient, I think we're headed in the right direction, but I think we're never going to be able to truly pinpoint, you know, why things are happening, but I think we can start to develop some ideas, but for, you know, any one person to say, this is why we get hamstring pulls, or this is why we have non-contact ACL injuries is like you said, we're grasping at straws. But, you know, when we're looking at sort of the current injury history, uh, sorry, current injury issues that we see in college and pros. Um, do you think that a lot of that stuff starts at the youth level? Because you see all of these AAU programs and these club programs that are just beating the hell out of athletes and they're getting these overuse is issues. Do you think that that's one of the main con uh, contributors to, you know, older athletes? When I say older, I, I say college and uh, professional athletes. Do you think the fact that they've specialized too early and they played the same thing year in and year out, do you do you feel like that's a big contribution to why these athletes are having issues? Yeah, it's a fair point. And my gut, my gut tells me, and this is my microbiome talking to my brain, actually. So I, <laughs> there's something to that as well. But my, 
my gut is telling me and others after this many years that that there's something there that is and it's is it an overuse thing or is it an underuse thing doing other things you know is it a lack of multilateral training that sort of thing multilateral activities the gut instinct and and the very visceral part of me says yeah there's got to be something there it's strange when you start thinking about um what's happening in the nba now with some of the load management that's going on and they're pointing to the fact that yeah we've got to load manage these these guys and gals better um because of what they've come up through with so many more reps you know it's almost like uh, the old there used to be an old theory, I can't remember, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago that you only had so many heartbeats, right? And once you once you expended all your heartbeats, you died. I mean, I'm not ready to go there, um, <laughs> but I, I, I do think that there's this multi, potentially the lack of, of multi-sport, multilateral development um, that, that is potentially missing in our, in our youth model today. Uh, it's the survival of the, of the fastest and the fittest in a lot of cases. We don't, I'll be honest, I, I'm a little bit disappointed um, when I when I see other development models to compare to the United States specifically. We're not really we're not really developing youth. Right. We're 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 sort of it's sort of a factory and it's the survival of the fittest. It's natural selection. Um, and so that maybe our development model needs to be shifted you know, downward a little bit. I think that. Um, that I think some of the statistics that I'm reading now is is most of or a majority of the kids that are that are playing sport at age 13, by the time they're 16, are out of the sport, like 50, 60 percent, something like that. And I, I don't want to quote that exactly, but it's a ridiculous number. Uh, so why are they quitting sport? And it's, it's some of that is is pretty obvious, right? They're some of it they're getting injured, but a lot of it's just they're not having fun and they're not with their friends anymore. But we know that playing sport, the longer you play sport, uh, it's a pretty good indicator of a better chance for you to be an, have an active lifestyle as an adult, whether you suck or not. Doesn't you know? It's not that as big a deal as just stick with your sport. So for me, it's a big play. It's, it's not just the injury piece. For me, it's keeping kids in sport, keeping kids having fun with their friends. Uh, sometimes that means playing other sports with other friends. Maybe your friend is you know he plays soccer, but you play basketball. Maybe that's an opportunity to go play that sport with that friend, be with that friend. Is, is the system set up to allow that? Or are we indirectly sort of forcing kids into that early on? I think that's a systemic thing or a, a, you know, a big community-based thing. But really it's a big, it's, it's very important to me having kids that age right now. I've got one that's 15 going through that specialization process in soccer and I'm seeing it. I'm seeing the challenges as a parent. I get it uh, from club soccer to high school to the, the soccer specialty strength conditioning that they're doing. And I'm saying, look, son, you're, you know, he's 15 and I'm a pretty, I think I'm a pretty fair, smart guy in this. Right. And I'm buying into this whole specialization thing because it's, I got to, because that's what's it. I mean, that, that's me. I mean, I can't imagine <laughs> parents that don't have ground that I have what they're dealing with. Um, so I think there's something there again, great opportunity for us. I think from the sports science side of things to delve into, get with the behavioral science folks, the behavioral medicine folks, uh, again, pulling in some of that, those biosciences space. And again, data science. Guys, we, can't, we cannot answer that question without a village, without a transdisciplinary approach, or we're just going to continue to kick the same rocks down the, down the alley. I think, I think there's, some, there's, some, there's some fire where that smoke is, but to answer your question is, is it load? Is it this? Is it, I, don't, I don't know. And again, I'll raise my hand. I say I don't know way too much. I'm sure you're, you're, you're Folks that listen to these want the answers. Uh, I, I'm the guy that says says those three words a lot, 
but I'm encouraged because I, I do think there's something there and it's going to require all of us to kind of pull into the, to the sandbox together and play to answer it. Yeah. I, I think the big thing is, Oh, sorry. Uh, I just want to say something quicker. Uh, I ahead. think the big thing is saying that there's an absolute, you know, like for example, if someone, you know, is in a game and they're playing football and someone just absolutely destroys someone, someone's knee, like you can't mobilize, stretch, strength, train your way out of that. That's just, a, that's just literally an accident. Right. But um, you know, I, I think that when it comes to a lot of these non-contact, uh, you know, we always use ACL because it seems to be, um, you know, the most popular sort of lower extremity based issue. And again, I think we, we, I think as long as we're starting to inquire and we're, we're asking the right questions, I think that's a step in the right direction. Do I ever think we're going to have absolutes and, you know, everyone's going to talk about, well, it's their group BDS or it's this and that everybody wants to, everyone wants to pretend that they have the answer. And, and, and I love the fact that with someone that's been doing this for such a long time, you're like, I have an idea, but I can't absolutely say it's this and this. And, and I think we need a lot more honesty in, in our industry in general, because that that's the absolute truth is we don't know we have ideas and we can say it might be this and white be this and it might be this but i mean how are we going to ever um get a you know a, a study or an actual you know peer-reviewed piece of data that's going to say it's this and this i think i think what we're going to see is empirical evidence telling us over and over again pointing us in a certain direction but are we ever going to get an absolute sort of answer i probably don't think so and and like you said as long as we're as coaches and as clinicians and as sport coaches, you know, at the end of the day, I think if we're looking out for our clients and, and we're looking out for their development and their health long-term, I think we're, we're, we're doing the best we can as, as, uh, as coaches, because it's, it's important. Like you said, we don't, we want these kids to be healthy and, and enjoy exercise and fitness for the rest of their life, not until their athletic career is done. And then they never touch it again. So great. Very well said. And again, it's, it speaks to, I know everybody's uh, sports science. That must be technology. Technology is going to have a play here. I think we need to leverage technology in a way that answers some of those questions. And and some of the folks that I'm I'm kind of that li lights me up when I listen to them speak, or some of the folks that are that are looking at the real extremes of things. And I know it's a little bit it's weird for me to think about extremes, but how about an, an insightable, a sensor on the ACL that tells us, you know, are you are you reaching a critical mass of stress? Is the ACL is that an overuse injury? I mean, think think about that question and what that you know could implicate for all of us. And the technology may have an answer for us to actually measure, monitor, and actually help us to manage ACL load. Just think. I'm not saying that's accurate, but just think what that could could open up to be able to jump into that space. We have to be opened up to to uh, to maybe yeah, crying in our beer at night because it might expose some of the things that we think is best practice. Let's revisit best practice. I don't want everybody to walk away from this losing their confidence in what they're doing, but also take that next uh, that next step and and critically evaluating best practices all the time. Constantly go back and and pull it apart and put it back together. Take it down to the studs and put it back together. And uh, and in doing so, I think that's the opportunity for us to really speak into those to those um, those challenges. Hey everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show, and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. 
It's ironic that you mentioned some of the things that you mentioned, Lance, and that talking about sports science and kind of being critical. And, and just this past week, uh, I don't know if you saw, but Stan Van Gundy, former NBA coach, was saying, you know, we have so much more sports science and so much more money invested in the preparation of players, but we have just as we have just as many, if not more injuries um, with athletes than we had in the 80s and 90s which gets tricky because it's very hard with anything, whether it's guys arguing at a bar over beer and peanuts over, you know, Babe Ruth versus Mike Trout, or, you know, trying to compare anything across generations because you have a very different experience of those, those athletes that came up in seventies and eighties that played in the eighties and nineties versus the kids of today, whether it's their PE, whether it's the, the stresses that they have to, to deal with at school and social media, AAU, all these multifactorial things. It's a very different animal that's walking uh into that arena uh now 20 30 years later than than you dealt with back then and so to just say sports science isn't doing his job is also not fair either it's well said but it's hey look i'm get uncomfortable with this i mean i i would tell my younger self that's trying to figure out all the answers i want it all in front of me so i can have the, the perfect decision man it's ambiguity man you got to be okay with that and there's a ton of that right now and so yeah science is out there helping us with truth so uh continuing to to ask those key questions and be okay with asking those questions and not let that sort of shake your your inner confidence because your athletes will see that and i think i've you know you got to balance this out uh, you got to be confident in what you do and and but it's not blind confidence you get even more confident really i do when i really seek the you know to understand and to ask some of those tough questions it drives even more confidence it's easy for me to say now after 30 years my younger self, if I'd have told myself that, I'd be like, you're crazy. I want to jump into this space. And, you know, young days, strength was my golden hammer. I mean, when it was a problem, just get stronger. And that seemed to fix everything. So all of a sudden, I became very biased and would select everything that would speak into that fact that strength was the key. Stronger, stronger, stronger. And um, But that was just, a, I think, a self-defense mechanism maybe to, to shroud a lack of confidence. So uh, I'm not saying I'm ultimately confident in everything now because I, I still have those those challenges but but uh for the younger folks listening in or those that are just jumping into this uh this profession yeah don't let it shake your confidence ha it, it can actually enrich your confidence when you take that approach and and i i encourage everybody because it's going to take everybody i think uh at, at all levels and, and and all walks and shapes of life and and uh a, a full spectrum from injury to high performance for us to to move the needle in this profession. And, and I want to so very badly, I want to innovate. I, I do think we need to innovate. We need to come up with new, uh, we need to challenge the old. And, and so I encourage everybody listening, do that at whatever whatever level, wherever you are on your path, do it and, and do it with confidence because it's going to be great. So I want to circle back to um, the LTAD stuff with younger athletes and, and kind of uh, what a utopian world would look like on your end with, with developing young kids for, for not just athletics, but, but health. But before we do that, as somebody who works with a lot of high school teams, I have a high school uh, baseball team that I'm going to be working with later this afternoon. If I could provide to you as, as somebody at, at Oklahoma State, if I could ship off an athlete that was getting recruited by uh, Oklahoma State and send them to you and they would be ideal for what you would be looking for to make your job so much easier, what, what types of things would you want to see in terms of developing that kid to be best suited to be successful once they get to you? Yeah, that's a great question and, and, and love LTAD discussions and and special interest groups and it's i'm glad that it's 
it's now being sort of top of mind for everybody in this space because like, yeah, even 10 years ago, it really wasn't, you know, it was still sort of a kind of a, a fledgling sort of a concept, but it's, uh, I think it's important. I think it's important because it speaks into development. It's got the word in it, right? Development. And that's, I think that we're all developing, but certainly um, long-term is the other word. So, you know, it's this long-term approach. It's this slow cooking approach. The, the words matter in that. And so long-term long athlete development, athlete, that word matters. For me, athlete means you're physically literate. You have a high amount of physical literacy or physical competency. And we're all athletes um, uh, to some extent, right? We're all trying to perform. We're all, there's athletic demands of me when I go out there, I'm fighting against gravity right now. So you got to be athletic. So I love LTAD and I love what it stands for, long-term athlete and development. And so if I'm if I'm trying to sell this to, to a parent or to a kid of why it's important, looking at it from a, a university level, let's say you're an athlete that wants to be at a, at a division one school playing a sport. Um, it's important that you are developed as an athlete first. And I, I, I truly believe that. And I think what it does is instead of being, you know, a yard wide and a mile deep in one specific um, characteristic of athleticism that happens to serve you well for basketball or track or football. Uh, what I see benefiting the most, the best is, is to have that broader sort of base of development, that, that, that bigger palette. If you're an artist, you know, you don't just have, you know, red and blue in your color palette, you got them all. And I think developing that at a younger age, that's, if that's physical literacy or physical competency, not just being able to, to do things, but being able to do them the best that you can do them gives you a great palette to play with. Deeper than that, though, you come in with what I think is is maybe even more important is is added confidence. You um, you know the athletes that come in that are more physically literate uh, typically have more confidence when they're in a new environment like they're here at Oklahoma State or any other university. They have their confidence from their sport. But when they're shit, you know, they're thrust into some different environments and some challenging environments, maybe new positions on the field, new schemes, they're they're able to adapt better. And so they're more adaptable. And but there's a confidence there. There's a confidence with that physical literacy as well. Does it speak into to their their um, their injury prevention? I don't know yet, but I, I think there may be something there as well. The more physically literate, potentially the the more injury resistant you may be. I don't know. I think there's some there's some potential for us to, to look into that. But I, I do think this too, that physical literacy doesn't mean that you've got to be Einstein physically. Um, I, I see physical literacy um, as something similar to, a, to, to being able to read. When you're good at reading and reading comprehension, reading is a little bit more fun, right? I'm, my, my, my son who's 15, um, he, he doesn't, you know, necessarily enjoy reading as much. Is that a reason? Is there a reason there? Because he's not as good at reading as he is some other things, you know, math and science, et cetera. So what I see with physical literacy potentially is a play for us to stay in athletics longer, to stay in sport longer, because what we know is fun and friends are two of the reasons why people, you know, drop out of sport. One thing I know about kids uh, is they like to get better at something. They like to, it's almost like a gamification uh, generation, right? They like to level up. And even if they suck, today, as long as they don't suck as bad tomorrow, or they, you know, they, they suck level 1.0 today, they're 1.1 tomorrow, 1.2. There's something about that, that leveling up uh, and showing progress that's, um, that's fun for kids. It keeps them engaged. And, and I think we've, we've learned that lesson from 
things like karate where you get the next belt, you know, things like um, Boy Scouts, Cub Scout, you get the next merit badge. It, it, there's there's some psychology to behavior there, uh, but it's also feeds back that we're getting better. And so for me, long-term development, we never stop developing. And then we use that to turn back around and talk to those kids that are, that are preparing for a, a, a career at an Oklahoma state or otherwise is, is give you some trajectory lines here. Here's where you're shooting for on these things. So here's, here's where you are. And look at the, look at the vantage point from, from how you're progressing, not where you are currently, but how you're progressing and then giving them some ownership of, Hey, you can continue to progress on these things. And that's maybe that speaks into evaluation, helping them understand where their strengths and weaknesses are and speaking into that in a way that's encouraging them that you have control over this. It's not just genetically predisposed. This is where you are. This is your, this is your trend line to where you want to go. Um, and then giving them the resources to, to you want to, you want to approach it this way and you want to get up to this spot. Well, doing the best you can means applying these different resources to attack that and to continue that slope. And who knows where you end up? You might go above that. Uh, but ultimately it's putting them in control of that development where it's not just happening to them, that they are an active, uh, they're active in that process. And we as parents and coaches and systems and schools are enabling them and empowering them to become the best versions of themselves uh, physically. So that's where I think LTAD is, where it could be leverageable. And then ultimately, I think that's an unlock for us from a uh, overall health standpoint. I want more physically literate, highly physically literate, or the maximized physical literacy of youth, because I really feel like that'll be an unlock for, for health outcomes later in life. Great stuff. And, and, you know, I, it's going to truly take a village and understanding that PE I, I think plays a big role in that, having that not just be about sports um, where it disadvantages the non-athlete. Um, I think understanding the role that PE can have uh, on all the other classrooms in the building, if it's done right, I think is important uh, in terms of the community sense of, of how we do this. Cause look, we can all be the, the old guy, you know, get off my lawn guy saying uh, that AAU and, and these travel leagues are, are the, bane of existence and they need to go away, but they're not, there's just too much money there. So how do we, how do we do this while having that still be present and still keep kids healthy and not have them stop playing sports at 13, 14 years old and, and, and to build a, a lifelong ability to have health and longevity. Yep. Well said. And PE is unfortunately is, has gone by the wayside in a lot of States. I think it's coming back. You know, I think it goes all the way back to maybe some, some presidents in our past that that wanted to not do away with PE, but in, in, indirectly sort of did when we refocused on on core subjects in in school. And all of a sudden it became a resource allocation problem, I think, for schools. Right? To do that, I've got to push push aside some of these other things. And unfortunately, unfortunately, PE was one of those that sort of got got pushed out in some in some uh, settings. And that's I think that's unfortunate. But again, it gives us an opportunity to fail forward. Look what it did. Look where we're, look where we're headed. Let's call the question, man, like you said, it's going to help those core competencies, but it's also potentially then going to lead to better health for us as a society. So it's, it's, again, it's an opportunity, I think, for us to fail, to fail forward. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the less tangible metrics when it comes to coaching and, and leadership in general. So we're talking about, you know, communication and leadership and, how important are those things uh, when it comes to the success of a program? You know, we've talked about the data and sports science, but, you know, communication, leadership, buy-in, trust, building a rapport with the athletes. I mean, that is, it, 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 for some people, that that's the, the sweet spot that people are missing. 
how much of that do you focus on in your programs and, 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 and how, um, you know, with, with the integration of that stuff, how, how do you focus on those, those different things like leadership, communication, et cetera? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, I think it's a real key for us. Again, it's an opportunity for us in sports science to, to look at that, to, to really look at how, how, how does a simple things, right? How does an athlete or a client, how do they, how do they best learn when they're trying to learn something? I mean, from the, from thinking about it in terms of us as a teacher, I, we were having a discussion with some of the coaches today uh, around learning preferences for their athletes. And um, uh, one of the things that we talked about was studying uh, the actual, the coach himself or herself to find out how they best learn. And, and when you, when you ask some of those questions and, and we know this from, again, from, from some of the sciences that a lot of the coaches, they coach their athletes in a way that they would best respond as an athlete to coaching. So if I'm, a, if I have a specific type of learning style, uh, a specific way that I connect with information or connect with the teacher, um, myself personally, I'm typically going to use that same approach to coach my athletes and if you don't know yourself really well internally you may not know what's you know what what your style is personally uh, but then if you're not also looking into the styles of the folks that you're that you're working with you might not know if you're aligning right to connect with them or not it may be an opportunity for us to use science um, to really understand ourselves and the athlete to, to mesh better. So a great example was a, a technology that we used at MJP with our NFL combine athletes. They would come in and we'd only have six, eight weeks with these guys, right? And so I, I'm, I'm not the guy that automatically connects with you. I'm kind of that weird, you know, the bald guy over there that's kind of scary looking. So I don't, I don't have that natural connectivity uh, to athletes like maybe I did when I was, I was younger. Um, so I'm looking for a cheat code, right? I want to know how to better connect with the athletes. I want to know uh, in six to eight weeks, I don't, I don't have time to, to figure you out. I've got to know what's going to resonate with you when you walk in. And so there was some technology that we utilized, um, early days technology to help me understand how my teaching style was uh, and then understand your learning style. So if you're an athlete, hey, find out what is your learning style? What do, you, do you like it written? Do you like it verbal? Do you like a to watch it on a video? Do you, you know, do you need to be in the front of the line when we're demoing new drills or the back of the line? Simple things, right? Uh, but it allows us to, to get early adoption, you know, early connectivity with an athlete to be able to speak to them the way that they need to, uh, to, to optimize their performance. And we figured out that there's probably at a group of, you know, 25 different NFL combine athletes, there might be 10 different sort of general learning styles within that 25. And being able to identify and, and understand them a bit better about what's going to resonate with them gave us a little bit of a cheat code uh, to come in and really make sure we were what, what, the way we were messaging things resonated. So for you, I'm going to have you demonstrate. For you, you're not, you know, this guy over here, he's not demonstrating, he's watching. And for this one over here, don't say anything because the minute you start talking, he's, he's switched off. You need to ultimately just let him figure it out. Let him, let him find out the right way to do things by failing forward a little bit. So those are sort of things that I see as leveraging, potentially leveraging science to help us all be better connectors of people. However, it falls all the way back to what we, I think we initially started with was, and you said it, and I think it was something that, that maybe we gloss over and we talk about, but it needs to be reiterated all the time. It ain't about us. 
You know, we are in the service profession. It's about them. It's about your client. It's about the athlete. It's about that team. It's not about us. And we are we are truly a resource and in, in a service uh, service industry. And I and I think uh, when people really when, when you really genuinely are a service minded person, a servant leader, um, I, it's been my experience that when you're genuine with that, that people can people can smell genuine. And you get a benefit of the doubt that you don't otherwise get when you're when you genuinely are there to serve, and when you're you're honest, transparent, and forthright in that space, uh, and they see you for what you are—a servant leader, in my case, or, or a, a, in the service industry for them—it um, creates a lot of a lot of buy-in and gives you a lot of a lot of grace because you're going to need grace because you're going to screw up, coach, therapist, doctor. I mean, that's why they call it medical practice, right? They're practicing, right? So we're all screwing up every day. So you, we all need grace. Um, and I think when you keep them in the center of it, it's about them, not about us. Um, and that you're truly going into it with a servant approach, a servant leader approach, whether you're serving your 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 assistant coaches or your support staff or an individual athlete. Uh, I think that's the first step of many steps. And all the way into the science part of it, I think that's the first step uh, to creating sort of that that connection and and um and giving you that grace that you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be asking for some grace at some point. Um, but I think it, it's gone a long way for me. And it's something that with all of my, my teammates past, we, we, we push into that space early and often and really hire and fire around it too. I'll be honest. If you're not a servant uh, attitude, servant leader, service first, you, you may not, you, you may not be a best fit for, for the, for the team. All the stuff about uh, recognizing and appreciating the individual uh, personality traits of athletes is wonderful. We actually be mentioning Brett Bartholomew right before we we went live here, and that's a great resource in his conscious coaching stuff. Um, and then there, there's something else that that I'm thinking of as you're you're telling me this stuff, and I'm thinking of my own experience, and and I love that you brought up that there's things that you can do now with more freedom and confidence. 25, 30 years in that you wouldn't do back then. And, and a great example of that is I'm thinking about not ignoring the science, but maybe bending the science a little bit. And what I mean by that is, is appreciating the the reptilian brains that I have, you know, in this high school team that I'm gonna see later. Like as much as my job is I've been hired by the team to make them the best baseball players possible. I got a bunch of 16, 17 year old kids that also want to flex in the mirror and, and look good. And so as much as I, you know, five, 10 years ago would stand up on, on the, on the plyo box and say, look, bicep curls aren't winning us championship rings. You know what? They went and did it anyway. They just went to LA fitness and they did their, their, their beach body workout anyway. So I might as well figure what I might as well control that. So I came up with something called treat of the week. And it's basically like, okay, you, you know, your, your mom, your grandma, whoever it is, always told you that if you eat your meat, potatoes and vegetables, then you can have your treat. Well, for, for these kids, bicep curls and that kind of stuff was their treat. So I said, all right, we put in a good day of work today, treat of the week, roll up your sleeves, crank up the music, go stare in the mirror. You got five sets of bicep curls and triceps and kids absolutely love it. And if my program's good enough, those five sets aren't going to take away from it. And the buy-in you get because of that because you're actually recognizing what they wanted, um, I, I think is incredible. That's absolutely key. And one thing I'll, I mean, people probably want to listen to a podcast and, and bring something out of it that they can use tomorrow. And I haven't been that, I haven't been that guest to this point. I've probably raised more question marks than answers, but one I have figured out that I, I'll, I'll share with you on that. Uh, and it speaks to what you just talked about was choice is, is giving your athletes, giving your patients choices has been a huge um, 
a, a huge paradigm shifter for me because I, I wanted control. You know, I know exactly which exercise is the best to do. And we're going to do it. And you need to trust me because I'm the guy. Well, that don't work anymore. It, or it doesn't work. In, in my opinion, it doesn't work as good as it could. Um, a, a better approach that I've found is, as an example, you mentioned exercises in the weight room. So let's think about, you know, everybody, we need to, we need to back squat today. So if squats is on the menu. We're going to squat by gum, by golly. That's what we're going to do. Um, potentially figuring out a way to provide some choices. Uh, you know what you want to do. You want to get a squat movement in and you want to load it. Uh, maybe giving the athletes a little bit of some choice. Hey, instead of, you know, would you like to choose a back squat, a front squat or a zercher squat? And all of a sudden they have this choice. You're kind of giving them a choice, but you're not really giving them a choice, right? We're going to do a, we're going to do a loaded squat maneuver. We're going to get what I need to get done. Um, but it's, you're going to have some choice in that. And what it does is it really creates additional buy-in just sort of naturally or what I've seen anyway. I learned that from a guy named Joe Jurassic at the Dallas Cowboys feels like a hundred years ago, he would give vets that came in, you know, if it was Vinny Testaverde coming in as a quarterback, I remember a discussion he had with Vinny. Um, I mean, this is Vinny Testaverde, right? I mean, 12, 13, 14 years in the NFL, uh, highly successful quarterback. Uh, it's off season training time. What are you going to do? You're going to tell Vinny to back squat because that's what we do. No. What does he do? He sits down with Vinny and says, Hey, what do you like to do? You know, here's some options for you. And he gave Vinny some options, you know, as a, as a safety squad. I think it was a front squad or but I can't remember the exact exercises, but it was a conversation. And all of a sudden, Vinny is now selecting into a, a grid of a program that we we all know is, is best practice to get him ready for the season. But he's had choices along the way. So it feels like it's his program. It's individualized for him based on his choices. And I think those choices that had great power. And I remember that that lesson. I, I learned that lesson early on and I've applied it in physical therapy. I've applied it in uh, in strength conditioning with kids all the way to pros. And so that's maybe a take home in that space to uh, to really drive some of that buy in that you talked about is is and, and you don't lose control. You actually you actually enhance your control when you're when you're able to build in choice. Spectacular. So um, we, we could go all day, but, but we want to uh, respect everybody's time here. So so tell us about kind of what you're focused on in 2023. What are some of the, the projects that are that are getting a lot of your attention right now? Well, yeah, it's a, at Oklahoma State University, we're going to be uh, launching a, an institute, the Human Performance and Nutrition Research Institute. Um, it's an amazing project. I encourage your listeners to, to jump on Oklahoma State's uh, website. You'll start to see some, uh, some, some collateral information coming out about it with a, a, a sort of a vision to, to transform health outcomes by, by understanding optimum and optimizing performance. And I think that's, that's loosely a vision, kind of a loose vision statement, if you will, um, that, that we're using to sort of to sort of conceptualize this because it's a big concept and it overlaps academics. It overlaps into the medical arm of this university. Uh, it pulls in industry partnerships. I mean, it does a, a tremendous amount of, of things that we just talked about here uh, sort of conceptually that we need to answer some of, of life's big questions, some of performance's big questions, whether that's for health or for, for optimum performance out on the field and court. So I'm excited um, it's going to be, it's going to be a huge project that has a lot of arms and tentacles to it. I encourage everybody to, again, to jump on, uh, Oklahoma state's website. You can follow me on, on Twitter a little bit here and there. I'll start talking more about it. Um, but again, let's transform health by, by truly understanding optimum and optimizing performance. And, and I think that's going to be a unique approach, 
uh, to attacking some old tried and true problems that we that we're having. And I'm encouraged by what I'm what I'm finding so far uh, in terms of partnerships, collaborations, and interest and expertise right here on 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 our campus that uh, that we're going to bring to bear to to fight this rhinoceros because it's a it's a big it's a big challenge for us. And I look forward to sharing uh, maybe on our next podcast some of our findings and and translational research and outcomes. Uh, that we impact with this with this work. Awesome stuff, and kudos to you and and, and everything that you're doing. And it's it's been a, a great pleasure and honor in having you here. I was looking forward to this one, and it certainly did not disappoint. Mike, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? No, uh, this is this was an awesome conversation. And uh, Lance, thank you so much for just sharing. Um, you know, when we talk about kids in the LTAD model, like that's one of my favorite things to do. So um, I truly truly appreciate your expertise and your time. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Keep this work up. This is important work you all are doing, so I appreciate the messaging. Oh, thank you. Once again, thank you to Lance Walker, and we'll have all those links in our show notes. Make sure to check them out. And thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.